When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. This episode is brought to you by Snapple. Want to know another Snapple fact? The first hot air balloon passengers were a sheep, a duck, and a rooster. Ridiculous. Check out Snapple.com to find ridiculously flavored Snapple near you. The Slate Culture Gab Fest is brought to you by Audible.com, a leading provider of spoken audio information and entertainment. Listen to audiobooks whenever and wherever you want. Get a free book when you sign up for a 30-day free trial at audiblepodcast.com slash culturefest. The following podcast contains explicit language. I'm Julia Turner, and this is the Slate Culture Gab Fest, Ow, Your Cheekbone Edition. It's Wednesday, June 4th, 2014, and on today's program, we're going to talk about the magnificent Angelina Jolie in Maleficent, then tab culture. In the age of social media, are we all forever faking it? And finally, the song that introduced sex to pop music in 1909. Joining me today is Slate film critic Dana Stevens. Hi, Dana. Hello, Julia. And also Mike Pasca, host of The Gist, Slate's new daily podcast. Hi, Mike. Hey. Thanks for uh, sitting in. Steve, as I think our listeners know, is still out on book leave, finishing up that tome. So uh, good luck to you, Steve, wherever you are. All right. Before we jump into our first topic, I want to give a quick pitch for Slate Plus. Slate Plus is a new membership program at Slate that offers perks to our most loyal readers and listeners. And there are a few things in particular that you guys might enjoy. One is a database of all of the endorsements we've ever made on the Culture Fest. And another is that we have bonus segments on every week's show. So today, our bonus segment is the question, how has your cultural taste changed from what it was 10 or 20 years ago. So Mike, Dana, and I will be sticking around after the show to discuss that. And if you're a Plus member, you can listen to that segment. Sign up for the membership and learn more at slate.com slash culture plus. All right, let's commence with our first topic, Maleficent. Before we start, let's listen to a clip. Well, well. (laughs) What a glittering assemblage, King Stefan. Royalty, nobility, the gentry, and... (laughs) How quaint. Even the rebel. I must say, I really felt quite distressed at not receiving an invitation. 
You're not welcome here. <laughs> oh dear. What an awkward situation. I think we can hear a little bit of the tone of the movie from that clip, which features Angelina Jolie swanning and strutting about. But Dana, before we get into our take on the film, why don't you just walk us through a little bit through the conceit? Who is Maleficent? What is the concept of this movie? Okay, so Maleficent is a sort of revisionist fairy tale that retells the Sleeping Beauty legend from the witch's point of view, the witch being played by Angelina Jolie, who we just heard in that clip. And uh, she begins the movie not as a witch, but as a fairy. So it is really a reimagining of the character's origin story, who I think in in the 1959 Disney Sleeping Beauty gets no origin story at all. She's just a mean witch from the beginning. Instead, we see that Angelina Jolie, before growing up to be Angelina Jolie, was this lovely fairy girl, an orphan who lived alone in a tree and flew in the skies and enjoyed her her beautiful life over the moors. And what I'm about to say is a mild spoiler. It's given away in most reviews, including mine. It happens in the first 20 minutes of the movie. But if you don't want to know anything about Maleficent, you can stop listening now. So what happens uh, to this younger version of Angelina is that she sort of falls in love with a human boy. At least they have a sort of romantic friendship. They're early teenagers. And the fairy and human worlds, because of this, stand some chance of being reconciled. Because in this world, the fairy and the human worlds are at war. But the young human boy instead grows up to be this uh, ambitious striver who wants to be the king. And in order to become the king, and in a scene that I found one of the, the movie's strongest scenes, he puts her to sleep with poison potion and cuts off her wings. So she wakes up essentially castrated, deprived of the, her most beloved limb and the thing that allowed her to be free. And that's how she becomes evil and becomes Maleficent. From there, it's a somewhat recognizable Sleeping Beauty story, including that scene at the christening that we just heard. That's her crashing the, the baby's christening who will become Sleeping Beauty. But in the second half of the movie, which we can discuss, there starts to be a relationship between Maleficent and the young Aurora, the girl who is growing up to be Sleeping Beauty, played by Elle Fanning. So... The problem with uh, your description, which was apt and accurate, is it seems to give the impression that there are, I think, more layers and more things for at least me as an adult to hang on to, more resonances than the movie actually had. I thought it was pretty limited in its appeal to maybe between 5- and 12-year-old girls, although my boys did like it, but they like movies, you know, just in general. And so I think the problem with this is that a couple of things, because it wants to retell the Sleeping Beauty story, and I think we should talk about, was it so necessary? Did they have an idea to have an Angelina Jolie Disney vehicle and then graft the idea of, oh, let's retell Sleeping Beauty? Or did they have an idea to retell Sleeping Beauty and then they got Angelina Jolie involved? I don't think it was necessary that they had to retell Sleeping Beauty. Fine. But I think the problem for me was that all the plot turns were pretty much seen from a mile away. This was a classic movie of tell, don't show. I mean, the voiceover is like, why were the two kingdoms at war? I don't know. The humans were aggressive. And there there were some other huge whys that were never really addressed. We were just um, supposed to take on faith. Oh, yeah. Why does the king, who is worried about his daughter and doesn't want her to grow up to be Sleeping Beauty, why does he send her away to be taken care of by incompetent nymphs? Absolutely. And, and like, just let her be abandoned in the forest for 16 years? My, my seven-year-old <laughs> Was on that. He, he said, my seven-year-old was like, wait, if she's going to be fine until she's 16, why did she have to leave when she was a baby? Yes. It's like the Oedipus story. He's trying to thwart fate. You're right. It's a fairy tale. So all the, it just seemed like you could always fall back on that and you could say, well, motivations don't really have to be that logical. But still, I think it robs it. It robbed for me of the viewer some, 
you know, what I look for in a movie, which is a little bit of cleverness and a little bit more surprise. I know that they're trying to be iconic and simple, but at times I was very confused by, wait, who are we supposed to be rooting for at this point? By two-thirds of the way into the movie, I got it. But I think that that's an example of it not being simple and clean and not being fairytale-like in retelling the story and casting Maleficent as the wronged innocent and then the avenging girlfriend and then finally we come back to sympathize with her. Yeah, I mean, it's an interesting arc that the Angelina Jolie character has in the movie and it ends up with her in a maternal superhero role, which is sort of her role in in the world. Like, I actually think the arc of Maleficent in the movie sort of parallels the arc of Angelina Jolie as a celebrity and yes, movie star. Yes, and that's what which, gives the movie the resonance that Mike thinks is missing from it. I mean, it's Angelina's performance, but it's also her Angelina-ness being imported from outside the movie into the story. Right, but I think that's necessary. I mean, let's get back to that in just one minute. I mean, the thing that's interesting to me about Sleeping Beauty and why I retell Sleeping Beauty is Sleeping Beauty is the worst of the fairy tales from the gender role perspective, right? She's literally asleep. She's literally inert. She has no agency whatsoever because she's sleeping like a dead person until the guy kisses her and wakes her up. Um, So that's not a fairy tale that you can do anymore. You can't do it straight. Like, it just wouldn't play at all. And that strikes me as a marker of progress in the world and something we should be happy about. Should we just abandon it and not tell it at all? That seems to me like a perfectly viable option. But if you're going to tell it, the notion of instead empathizing with the witch character and putting Angelina Jolie in the role seems very, very fun. I did not feel that the movie worked particularly well because it was operating in so many different registers. Like, every scene with Angelina Jolie in it I thought was fantastic, and most of the other scenes didn't work very well. But I think... I was ready to go on the Angelina Jolie Express ride. Like, I love Angelina Jolie, and I'm not ashamed to say it. And it was pretty fun to see her go from athletic super vixen to wing-sliced, anguished person to evil, evil person, uh, and then back to maternal powerhouse, which is, as I was saying, sort of the arc she's taken in the tabloids, right? She started as this, like, super hot, talented weirdo who kissed her brother at the Oscars. And wore blood and a vial around her neck. <laughs> and wore blood and a vial around her neck. And, and did have wings, actually, at that point in her career. <laughs> then there was the gigantic Pitt-Aniston conflagration in which she was the, the other woman rather than the woman scorned, and her name was dragged through the muck a bit, and then she rebuilt her reputation by having or and or adopting six children and marrying Brad Pitt and becoming a UN Goodwill ambassador and uh, what else has she done? She got a double mastectomy and wrote about it and so has become a sort of public health advocate. I mean, she's recreated herself and watching her reenact that all in a very melodramatic way where she seemed very conscious of wrapping her whole self around every line was great. There's a moment where she says, I hate children. And you just, you see all the pictures of her with Pax and Maddox and Zahara. And yes, I know the names. Shiloh. I don't know if I know the other two. But Vivian and Nock. (laughs) And Vivian is in the movie, actually. Vivian Jolie Pitt, one of the twins, plays the little four-year-old version of Aurora about four, when she comes up and gives her a hug in the woods. (laughs) Because I read about this in some interview with Angelina, they couldn't get any other kid to hug her in costume. She was too scary, but her own daughter would do it. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. That's hilarious. I missed that detail. Well, they couldn't get any triplet to do it because that's the limited universe of child actors that they (laughs) can choose from. (laughs) Anyhow, I, I don't think I would recommend this movie to anyone who was not a young girl or a grown Angelina fan. 
But as a grown Angelina fan, I thought it was pretty fun. You know, she's also hinted in the press that this may be her last movie or one of her last movies and that she's going to move on to another part of her career that's more about, you know, the other wondrous incarnations as UN ambassador and face of Louis Vuitton and mother of six and <laughs> yeah, whatever why not, else. If it's um, out there. So that also fed into, I think, my enjoyment of this movie, which was more intense than I expected. I mean, for all its flaws and all its corniness, I really enjoyed this movie beginning to end. And I think a huge part of it is that it was just Angelina enjoying her own movie starness and kind of communicating to us the archetype elements of that. You know, I think it's also a script by Linda Wolverton, the woman who wrote the script, wrote Beauty and the Beast, the Disney musical from 1991, and she wrote The Lion King, not the play, not the book for the, the play, I think, but the, the script for the movie. And I just feel like she has some kind of grasp of archetype. She doesn't tell stories perfectly. There's some logic holes here and there. I won't give them away because it would spoil too much of the plot. But... I feel like she understands what is essential about this story and what, as you say, little girls and Angelina fans would love about it. I One quick thing I want to hit before we move on to our next segment is the notion... I mean, what this movie does is humanize the villain, right? We get the yes. villain's backstory. We get the villain's motives. We sympathize with the villain. By the end of the movie, the villain, for reasons we won't reveal here, turns out to be slightly less of a villain. And we saw this also recently in Frozen, right? The protagonist of Frozen, Elsa, is essentially the villain character. She's the Snow Queen, the Ice Queen, and uh, it's a slightly more complicated and, role. And Wicked. Wicked is the same story, too. Yeah. So are we not allowed to have actually evil villains anymore? And if not, is that a loss? We do have a villain problem. I mean, even in this movie... I I was thinking since they were showing, since they were telling, not showing. Why, why are the humans uh, hating the fairies? So how we're supposed to, I guess, hate the humans? And it would be easier if they were orcs, right? They would, they would do something gnarly, and they would hiss, and we'd hate them just because they look like orcs. So you know, this is. This is also in keeping with the tradition of all the great cable heroes being anti-villains. I mean, people just want to write villains. And so when you have a villain who just seems unmotivated, I don't know, it seems from an earlier era. I suppose it's a sign of sophistication that the villain becomes the most uh, compelling, interesting, humanized character. I don't know. It seems like we have superhero movies every single summer in which there's villains that are pretty much flat out bad and they get pushed off castle roofs at the end and they die. I mean, I still think that this is on the unusual side, the villain who is rehabilitated. And it's a story, I should say, that has in its own way a great appeal to children. The entire time I was seeing Maleficent, I was thinking my daughter would love this. I subsequently could not get her to go to the theater with me because to my great sadness, she does not like seeing movies in the theater. The daughter of a movie (laughs) critic, she said, well, wait until it comes out on disc. She was afraid it would be too scary. Anyway, I thought of her the whole time because she loves stories in which the villain is rehabilitated. The Grinch Who Stole Christmas, The Christmas Carol, you know, any story about a bad guy who becomes a good guy is fascinating to her. And when I tell her I saw a kid's movie that's got a villain, she'll say, did he become nice? Did he become nice? (laughs) (laughs) Terrible life lesson. (laughs) We need to find them and kill them. (laughs) All right. On that note, uh, the film is Maleficent. It stars Angelina Jolie and a bunch of other nameless simps. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Before we move on to our next segment, let's hear a word from our sponsor. Dana, who do we have today? The Culture Gap Fest is happy to be sponsored by Audible.com, the leading provider of spoken digital audio entertainment and information. They have over 150,000 great titles to choose from, and you can listen to them on any device, including whatever you're hearing us on right now. And if you sign up at our URL, which is audiblepodcast.com slash culturefest, you get one free audiobook and a one-month trial of the service. So you can choose, as I said, from many, many, many titles on Audible's site, but we have been creating of late the Culture Gab Fest bucket list where we 
recommend some classics that you can find on Audible. And so for this week, we have Sleeping Beauty and Other Classic Stories. It's a collection of classic fairy tales that includes the Grimm Brothers' German tales collected from centuries of folklore and Charles Perrault's tales, which were written, I think, mainly originally by Charles Perrault in the 17th century, and which include, in fact, Sleeping Beauty and also Cinderella. We were actually talking about fairy tales here last week because the Slate Plus question was for each of us to choose our favorite folk tale or fairy tale. Yeah, and Dana, you and Dan Coy's totally welched and didn't pick an actual uh, Western European fairy tale, you you globalists. Yeah, Dan really went modern. He actually chose a Miyazaki movie, so I consider that true cheating. I at least went back in time and talked about a Greek myth. Yeah, but I will, special sneak peek, Slate Plus preview, I chose Rumpelstiltskin because it's a fairy tale about the power of words. So... Yeah, you can't. You cannot be an educated consumer of any kind of culture without knowing these myths. All right. Well, you can find Rumpelstiltskin and Sleeping Beauty and dozens of other fairy tales in Sleeping Beauty and Other Classic Stories, which is this week's bucket list choice on Audible. So again, to subscribe, you would go to audiblepodcast.com/slash/culturefest. All right. On to our next topic. Our next subject is a New York Times article called "Faking Cultural Literacy" by the journalist and author Carl Taro Greenfield. Uh, Dana, why don't you give our listeners a brief summary of what this article argues? So Greenfeld's contention, I guess, is that we're all faking all of our cultural knowledge and we're just getting it through our social media Twitter feeds. And as a result, sort of public discourse and, and cocktail party conversation has disintegrated down to the point of people, for example, pretending that they've read articles that they've only read the headline of, opining on the Solange Knowles, Jay-Z elevator fight without having watched the footage and done their, <laughs> done their due diligence. that's the deep dive that you need to <laughs> Right, <to>. exactly. <laughs> and uh, he runs down a bunch of, you know, similar cultural kerfuffles of recent days and talks about his own kind of investment in them. I mean, as you can probably tell from my tone, I found this article very annoying. To me, the sort of the upshot, the takeaway of this article was, okay, Carl Taro Greenfeld is a big phony. I mean, <laughs> if you really want to decry the decay of values in the social media age, then don't go around lying and pretend you've read things you haven't read. He also tells a story from his past about Cliff's Notes in college or high school and discovering the existence of these magical yellow and black booklets that would explain what book was it he was trying to figure out? Well, I don't know. I didn't read the whole article, but I feel <laughs> I can talk about it expertly. <laughs> I mean, so he, he recalls this cliff note moment, and what he doesn't seem to acknowledge in any way is any progress since that time. He's still apparently getting by with cliff notes and feeling vaguely guilty about it anyway. I mean, I guess I sort of felt like if you really do feel some moral tug to make conversations more substantial, then don't lie so much. <laughs> <laughs> Mike, what was your take on the article? Yeah, I thought that his point which he didn't make well and which he exposed himself to be a rather unethical raconteur, right? And a bad conversation partner. I actually endorse his point as I uh, understood or maybe projected what his point should be, which is that there's so much streaming around us that even to have a chance, we have to take some shortcuts. And well, maybe this wasn't his point, but I have often thought of what are the acceptable shortcuts? What counts as reading a book? Since we can't read all the books in the New York Times book review every weekend, if we do read the review of the book and then hear a fresh air interview, and then I say, get even one other interview, maybe, you know, seven minutes somewhere else, then you've read the book. <laughs> and so when there's a 15,000-word essay by Tanahasi Coates in The Atlantic, if you listen to three discussions about the essay and read a really good article that has, you know, six clips from the essay, then you've come really close to reading the essay. And the point is that you don't have to... 
obviously you haven't really, and you shouldn't say you have if you haven't read all 15,000 words, but if you commit to those 15,000 words, and if you commit to Robert Kagan's 15,000 words in the New Republic about Obama foreign affairs, and if you're a good reader of fiction, well, then you can't really be well-versed on all this other stuff that's out there. So I think to be uh, an eclectic and Catholic person, you have to take some what would normally be called shortcuts in the uh, 1970s and prior. Yeah, I mean, I thought this article was tantalizing because it identifies a modern predicament, but then I think had the wrong opinion about Mm -hmm. it. It is true, at least for me, in the way that I consume media. I think my name for it is tab culture. So I open 20, 40, 60 tabs a day. I I open tons of tabs of things I want to read. Inevitably, my computer then clunks down to a halt, and I send a bunch of them to read later on my Insta paper, and sometimes I read them and sometimes I don't. I also look at Twitter. I see all the articles that people are talking about. I also look at Facebook. I see the articles that people are clicking on. The Twitter ones are about news. The Facebook ones are about parenting. I absorb it all through the ether. Then I listen to like 30 or 40 podcasts, so I sometimes hear in-depth discussions of articles and books and movies and TV shows. So I'm aware of a lot I'm very aware of a lot of things to the point where when I see some people having a fight on Twitter and it's not immediately apparent what the Twitter fight is about, I will try and get back to the kernel so that I can become aware of that Twitter fight because I like to be aware of all the things. In part, this is because I'm a journalist. It's my job to be aware of all the things so that I can know whether Slate is covering all the things appropriately. And in part, it does sometimes make you feel glib, right? Like you are aware that all these things exist, but you haven't yet had a chance to sit down and read all 15,000 words of Tana Hasi Coates' article about slavery and reparations, no matter how much supplemental media you've consumed about it. So there is this modern predicament that you're aware of things that you don't know that much about. Then comes the question of what do you do about that? How should you feel about that? And is that actually a bad thing? I think we all agree that Carl Tarot Greenfield's solution to lie, pretend that he has consumed all the media, and assume that everyone else is lying reveals him to be a... And then deplore the culture of (laughs) lying. It reveals him to be a super weirdo. (laughs) Like, I I just haven't met that many people who lie all the time and pretend they're familiar with everything. Um, I think, and, and the most glaring one is when he said, "Oh yeah, I read that about an article that had not been published yet." <laughs> so he's he's tripping himself. He's, up. he's got his own set of problems. But the question of whether to feel good or bad about this glib awareness of the world that's very possible now, I'm genuinely ambivalent about because I think. On the one hand, sometimes it does feel exhausting to have so many headlines, you know, running like the scrim at the bottom of cable news through your brain without actually engaging. And when you have that moment where you stop and you get totally absorbed in one subject deeply for an hour, it feels refreshing. It feels like that's not our default mode these days. On the other hand, I think you could make the argument that it is a great marvel of modern civilization and technology that anybody with an internet connection can be aware of so much. I mean... It's kind of great to know how many interesting cultural debates and fights are going on at any given moment. It's kind of cool that you can dip into them, learn enough about each one that you can then decide where you want to take a deep dive. I sort of think this technological moment is maybe more to the good than to the bad. What do you guys think? Well, I mean, it certainly is a a, a very rich topic about which to either wring one's hands or clap one's hands. You know, I mean, there's a lot to say about it because you're right that it is sort of the soup in which we're all swimming right now. I guess, I mean, it seems to me like 
the question would be, where do you throw up your defensive barriers, right? I mean, you're both trying to maximize the flow of stuff coming at you and trying to minimize it at the same time. And it's kind of a dance between those two things. Well, on Memorial Day weekend, and I did a segment on this on The Gist, I did my media purge. I did my my great data purge. So I had all the articles that I had been saving up, and I kind of talked the listener through. And you had actual clippings. Yeah, I had actual clippings. I I tear the articles. I'm into actual newspaper articles as opposed to these, what do they call them, tweets or something? Um, And, you know, I got to a couple of truths, which is sometimes if you feel, so what don't you read? If it's a story that's going to move quickly, you know, you will maybe absorb that story. I use the Landon Donovan getting cut from the uh, U.S. national soccer team. I kind of missed reading the Times on the first day. I got it anyway. And you're not going to read about every little incremental thing that's happening in Donetsk. I mean, there are insurgents now. There's going to be insurgents tomorrow. There are 15 articles about the calm before the storm of Ukrainian uh, elections. So I don't think it's glib, right? I think putting aside Carl Taro Greenfield's... um, strategies. I don't think it's glib. I think I think it's the only way it, I think it's necessary eclecticism. And I think that um, we are actually getting smarter. And if you look at societies, you know, we have this notion of an earlier time when, sure, the founders of our country all studied Latin and they could read books and they had the time to do deep dives. But, you know, people who study IQs will always say that the more advanced societies get, the higher the average IQ gets. Because when people are studying or concentrating on, you know, say a simple agricultural task and not an abstract concept, it's not challenging intellectually is what we're dealing with. And I know that, I mean, David Brooks wrote about it today. How do we stay focused? I'm just thinking of the strategies for staying focused. Carl Taro Greenfield's put some out there. But what you were talking about, Julia, about figuring out where conversations are and tracing them back to the source. And then, you know, maybe sometimes reading the source material. That seems like a good strategy for becoming a smarter person, not a less deep person. It seems like the key in in some way, which is maybe the problem with this essay we're talking about, is having humility about it, is, you know, when you are swamped by the the world's knowledge coming at you through this rectangle in front of your face that you sort of say, this shows me how little I know. You know, it's like the great Socrates line about the wise man knows how little he knows. Right. Back then, Socrates only had like seven things to know. Right. On the other hand, okay, so but let's like mirror mirror on the wall here for a minute. We are all podcasters, right? So we all have to show up every week and exchange opinions about, in Dana's in my case, culture that we've consumed. Mike, in your case, whatever three news, three, four news items you've decided warrant treatment on your daily 20-ish minute show. So you have to get up to flight speed on four topics in a day. Dana and I have to dive into huge archetypes that are thousands of years old, interesting critical bodies. I mean, we all have to do this professionally, right? Talk about stuff that we know some about but that we don't know everything about. Well, that's where the humility comes in, because I really don't want this podcast to come off as this kind of glib pretending that we know what's going on. You know, I mean, I think that we, I hope, are able to say, look, this is tapping into a huge body of knowledge that we don't necessarily master. Right. And I think for me, what animates it is a spirit of curiosity. I mean, that's the thing that's so wonderful about the web today is if you are a curious person, there are so many ways to get your curiosity satisfied and then further wedded and then satisfied again, right? There is so much out there to learn. And so often on this show, we're reporting an encounter with something that can't be deep. I did not see District 9, for example. And so I don't know 
what, what's the guy's name? Charlton. Charlton Copley. You don't remember when he was a good actor? <laughs> exactly. So uh, my experience of Not Char- raging lunatic king. <laughs> my, my Not ex- the kind of go-to over-the-top villain for every blockbuster. My experience of Charlton Copley in this movie was like, who the hell is this guy? He sort of looks like Fabio. He does not seem handsome enough to be a famous actor. What is he doing playing opposite Angelina Jolie? And I didn't cop to that in the segment exactly. We just sort of avoided talking about Charlton Copley. And now I've confessed. I never saw District 9. Maybe I shouldn't have been able to evaluate Charlton Copley's experience. I mean, there there is a certain amount of truth to the fact that we all end up making opinions, not having studied anything for a year. But not everybody can be a PhD student about everything in their own life. And I think it's more fun and interesting to be curious about lots of things than extremely wise about one thing. Well, the nature of the podcast would make that impossible. It's too eclectic. We, it would take an, a lifetime, multiple lifetimes, to research every topic thoroughly. All right. Well, the article is Faking Cultural Literacy by a big cultural faker, Carl Taro Greenfield. <laughs> uh, read it, check it out, and come to our Facebook page, facebook.com slash culturefest, where you will have to fess up. Have you ever passed off an opinion you heard on the Culture Gab Fest as your own? All right, on to our next segment. Joining us for our third segment is Jody Rosen, erstwhile Slate Music critic, now erstwhile New York Magazine music critic. He has just joined T, the New York Times Style Magazine, as a critic at large. But quickly, we nabbed one fantastic piece from him first, mid-transition. He's written a great story for Slate about the song, Oh You Kid, which is the 1909 song that Jody argues introduced sex extramarital sex particularly to pop music. Let's listen to a clip of the song before we proceed. Now Jonesy was a married man, oh yes, he was. Sweet girly on the single plan, I guess she was. Jonesy stopped and spoke to girly just as old friends often do and he said I'm married but that but my dear means you So, Jody, you make two really fascinating arguments about this song. One, you show what a departure it is from the sort of mawkish Victorian songcraft that preceded it, which did sometimes allude winkingly to spooning and sighing and veiled sex references, but they were always with your husband or your sweetheart. There was nothing that quite so lewdly extolled the virtues of admiring someone who was not your spouse. And then also you talk about what a viral hit this was in 1909. And I think the notion of a 1909 viral hit is surprising to modern ears. But basically, you successfully argue that this was the call me maybe of uh, the turn of the century. So talk to us a little bit first about the sex. What's happening in the song? Who's the narrator? What's going on? And why was that revolutionary? You know, sex obviously was, or romance was, a, the primary topic of popular songs even before this. But it was, as you say, very coy. Um, and again, if and when there was any, even the suggestion of any slightly outre sex, 
those sentiments were placed in the voice of an ethnic black, especially protagonist, because a lot of popular songs at this time were written for the vaudeville stage and performed by, quote, ethnic impersonators, you know, blackface comedians, Jewface comedians, etc. So what the reason that this big song, whose title I should say, it's fu- the full title is I Love, I Love, I Love My Wife, but Oh, You Kid. Um, this song uh, had protagonists who were recognizably kind of regular old, normal, white, Protestant Americans who were getting up to no good with someone other than their spouse. The song itself, the dramatic situation such as it is in the song is there's a guy, he... Jonesy. Jonesy. Sees a, sees a beautiful girl in the street, tells her, yeah, I'm a married guy, but and I love my wife a lot, but wow, oh, you kid, you've turned my head. An interesting thing about this song, of course, is that in the second verse, his wife shows up, and she too is having fun on the side. So this is an equal opportunity... OPP song, right? Because the, the, the wife is getting it on with a butcher whenever Jonesy leaves the house. Jody, could you give some sense of what the reception history of the song would have been at the moment it was released? I mean, you, you talk about how for years afterwards it became this viral hit and people were, you know, making postcards and lapel buttons and, you know, spray painting the words on buildings. And it really, oh, you kid, became this kind of suggestive phrase at the time. But how would most people have heard it in 1909? Yeah, most people would have heard it either in live performance in, you know, popular in the popular theater context. That's one of the things that people that historians of this period in pop music and in, I should say, theater studies don't quite realize it's a big methodological mix-up, which I think is screwed up a lot of people's vision of what American popular music was during this period, is that there was no difference between musical theater and pop music at that time. That separation happened later with the advent of recordings and with the development of different types of styles of music. But pop music, big capital P pop music, was made on the variety stage. So you had high so-called high class vaudeville big vaudeville touring troops that went out across the the country and those were the where the really big stars played and then you had slightly lower tier forms of variety, burlesque or variety performance but that's one context in which people would have heard it and then they would have heard it performed you know in a restaurant uh by a singing waiter they might have heard a piano roll playing it they would have heard it in any of a number of different live contexts uh, and the sort of biggest venue for pop music during this period was the American home because people, the way people consume music is they bought the sheet music, they came, they brought it into their home. So that was the equivalent they, of selling the album, selling they, the sheet music. They'd sell the sheet music and you'd, you'd play it at home and you'd sing it with your family and friends. So a lot of I love, I love, I love my wife, but oh, you kids, sheet music was sold. And the recorded version that we heard might have been heard by absolutely no one from that time, Hold right? By, on, heard the, by on the very whole. few people because recordings weren't that big a deal then. I mean, it would have been heard by some people, the people who happened to have Victrolas in their house or Actually, that was probably a wax cylinder recording that we heard. Um, Might have been heard by people who went and listened to it in a Nickelodeon where you could drop a coin in a slot and listen to it through headphones. But, yeah, the, the, the recordings were definitely a lesser deal then. So it was OU Kid. Well, first of all, you identified it as the Call Me Maybe just because of its viralness, virality. But it's more like YOLO because people took it as, uh, put it on lapel pins and lived the lifestyle. Right. It really was a a catchphrase. You know, and they kind of, there was this, as I said, there was this 1908 song called OU Kid, which was a kind of a mid-level hit. It was a big enough hit to put that phrase in the vernacular. And then there, this is an interesting thing about the way the pop music business worked in 1909, which is before the creation of ASCAP and before there was there was like really any intellectual property law surrounding pop music at all that people just stole other people's ideas all the time or kind of upgraded them so there was a song which came out 10 days before Harry Von Tilzer and Jimmy Lucas the songwriters of I love I love I love my wife but oh you kid before their version came out 10 days earlier there was a song called 
I love my wife, but oh, you kid, just one I love by two different songwriters, which is kind of a crappy song. And these guys were like, oh, that's a good idea. Let's do a better version. So what you just said there, how they stole the other one's song. I mean, Tin Pan Alley started in 1885-ish, right? And it gets really... It gets, it's, it's the sort of atmosphere where there's always got to be some one upsmanship. There's slitting the other guy's throat. Is that why there was going to inevitably be, if you, in the minds of, say, a moralist, a race to the bottom? Like, to get a market niche, someone was inevitably going to go there in terms of sexuality. The way Tim Pan Alley worked, it was a viral business model, really, right? If, if there was a hit, people were, you know, one guy had a hit with a song, Many, many singers were going to interpolate that song into their acts, and many songwriters were going to copycat that song or try and do their own version. So one of the ways in which the I love, I love, I love my wife, I have to say all three every frigging time because uh, to distinguish it from the other songs. So forgive me. But anyway, the, this, the OU kid from 1909 that we're talking about, the reason that that, one of the reasons that was such a big hit was that there were so many people who actually tried to do their own version. So for instance, Irving Berlin's first big hit also of 1909. It's the first big hit he ever had was a song called My Wife's Gone to the Country. Hooray, hooray. My wife's gone to the country. Hooray, hooray. Which was a I love, I love, I love my wife, but oh, you kid copycat song. In fact, he even references the lyrics in that song. That was kind of one of the bigger spinoff songs. But there were dozens, even hundreds of these songs. And I mean, I think the other thing that we should say about its virality is that this this it wasn't merely like a pop culture phenomenon. It wasn't merely restricted to like popular music. You know, there were one real motion pictures that used this catchphrase in this scenario. So the the catchphrase and the idea, I love my wife, but oh, you kid, really rippled through the culture for many decades afterwards. And there are lots of examples of, the, of this that I detail in the piece. Including, for example, that Groucho Marx would use the phrase, oh, you kid, frequently in his, his routines, and that Angela Lansbury sang some song based on it in a yeah, musical? There was a, there was a musical called The Harvey Girls from 1946, and there was a new song in 1946 called Oh, You Kid, which was written, which again alluded to the earlier hit which again was about extramarital shenanigans and Angela Lansbury does a does a great kind of high kicking number uh, burlesque style performance of this song, uh, and it, and in fact the interesting thing about that performance is it's th- this is a period movie which is set in the progressive era. It's set like at the turn of the century, and so I love I love I love my wife, but oh you kid really for decades afterwards signaled to Americans. Not just raunchiness, but a kind of old-fashioned gas. Right, it's style like it's like putting all along the Watchtower in a movie about the '60s or something, right. right? But was there a moral panic over the song at the time? A, a, a huge one. So social reformers, pundits, people thundering against this song and its kind of you know horribly toxic effect it was having on the morals of Americans. There were people who wrote that this this was going to ruin humankind, quote unquote, was going to lead to you know. Mass divorces was one of the little details that I love the most is, you know, of course, the Reverend Billy Sunday. He was the hugely popular evangelical preacher, kind of like, I don't know what you'd say, the Jerry Falwell or Billy Graham uh, yeah, of, his, yeah. of his time. He gave a big sermon in which he inveighed against this song specifically and against Irving Berlin's My Wife's Gone to the Country, Hurrah, Hurrah. And uh, not, shortly thereafter, there was a song published called "I Love My Billy Sunday, But Oh You Saturday Night." <laughs> I loved also your, your tit for tat. Um, I loved your story about the graffiti that "I Love My God" was in some hymnal, and a wag wrote after it, "But Oh You Kid." <laughs> <laughs> 
another interesting thing about this is there was no youth culture to speak of. So this didn't really break down along the popularity of the song didn't really break down along generation lines. In fact, I don't know. I got the sense it was, if anything, an urban versus rural divide. You know, I disagree with you because I think because this this music, you know, that's Tim Pan Alley music went out across the country. It really did because of vaudeville touring troops. One of the first examples of the, of the song impacting the culture that I was able to find was a, was a newspaper editorial from just a few weeks after the song's publication where there was a front page political cartoon on the front page of the Des Moines, Iowa newspaper, which punned on the title of the song. So clearly this song traveled from West 28th Street to Iowa pretty quickly. And I think it was popular in the sticks and in the big city. I also think there was more of a youth, youth culture than we might suspect. You know, there wasn't a youth market that was identified as such, for instance, as, you know, the standard narrative goes that in the in the 1950s, um, kind of... The, the uh, invention of the teenager. The, the invention of the teenager, yeah. all that emerged because because record companies and uh, were identified a youth market. And, for, and here we were in this affluent post-war moment, and suddenly there was teenagers who had spending money of their own or their parents' money to spend. And that's all well and good, but I think, for instance, if you look at the, to go back to the moral panic, the things that social reformers were saying about what was going on in dance halls during this period, tens of thousands of young people, people, people who were teenagers, even though they weren't called that, and in their early 20s who were dancing the night away to what the social reformers called the suggestive songs of Tin Pan Alley, this really did appeal to those young people. And, there, and, and I mean, sure, there were probably people in their 30s who got into this song too. But I think it was largely uh, propelled by young listeners. And after all, those were the kind of people who were doing the dancing. And one of the things that this, all of all of the little hack historical research I've done in American popular music over the years has led me to realize that there's two things you have to follow. Follow what the young women are doing and follow where the dancing's happening. And that's where you'll see new music always breaks there. And I think if you look there, you'll find I love, I love, I love my wife, but oh, you kid. Well, Jody, thanks so much for writing the piece and for coming on to talk about it with us. Uh, I will have this song in my head for maybe not the next decade, but at least the next few days. <laughs> thanks, Julie. <laughs> will you stick around and endorse? I'd love to. All right. Now is the moment in our show for endorsements. Dana, endorse. My endorsement this week, and rest assured that I've cleared it with my deputy editor because I was afraid I was afraid my endorsement was log rolling. But I have to do it because Pesca is here. My endorsement is Mike Pesca's new Slate podcast, The Gist, which Aww. has very quickly, and it's what, three, four weeks of existence? 420. No, you're right. Technically, it's, <laughs> it just feels that way. <laughs> That's the toll it's taken on me. Yeah, four weeks. So this is a daily podcast. It's usually, what, 25 to 28 minutes long, right? Yeah. Just under half an hour long. And it's yeah. released every afternoon in the sort of 5 to 6 p.m. ET yeah. range, would you yeah. Say. And I happen to know this release time very well because within its few weeks of existence, it's become my daily dog walk pat podcast. I must listen to it every night while I walk the dog. And I'm also have become an addicted daily listener. Uh, and it's very fun to hear Mike's brain at work, particularly in the opener and the spiel. I someday want someone to diagram Mike's sentences because the (laughs) number of parentheticals and dashes and interesting interpolations that somehow he like somehow sticks the landing, Carrie Strug style, but without breaking his ankle, like every fucking time. It's amazing. Anyway, okay. Log roll over. 
Go listen to the gist. Mike, what's your endorsement? This week, I want to endorse a Brooklyn experience. I went to see the huge sugar sphinx in the uh, former Domino's factory. Have you guys been to this? <laughs> no. So this is the, the artist, Carrot Walker, has done a 35-ton sphinx of uh, an African-American woman, but, you know, uh, resting in the pose of a sphinx. And it is pretty anatomically correct. And uh, my kids loved it. I mean, how could you not love a sugar sphinx? Is it built of cubes, individual sugar it's cubes? It's just it's molded from... A, no, it's molded from granular sugar like they used to make in the Domino's factory. And there are little street urchins. Actually, there are little workers from a sugar field made of resin and sugar around it. And they're melting. And this is this is this makes a great statement, an amazing statement. It's just the sort of thing. There's a little bit of a line, but it's my kind of line, which is long, but it moves pretty quickly. All right. Thanks, Jody. What do you have? It's a book published a couple years ago by the written by the British historian Graham Robb, English historian. It's called Parisians, an adventure history of Paris. And um, it's it tells the story of Paris chronologically. It, the period it covers is from the revolution to the present day. But it's, um, it's not straightforward history. It really focuses in on these kind of, each chapter is a, is a character sketch. And so some of the characters are very well-known, Napoleon, Marie Antoinette, um, Baron Haussmann, the Robert Moses of 19th century Paris. These are obviously very well, uh, well-known well people, but Rob is an amazing writer. He is a serious historian. I think he's at Oxford, but he writes with the flair of a novelist. And it's one of those books which has that narrative nonfiction thing of where suddenly the author will jump into the consciousness of someone who's been dead for 200 years, and normally that raises a big red flag for me. But this guy is obviously so steep in this material, he, you feel like, like you're in such great hands that you, you really are swept along. So it's one of these books that's a real page-turner. It propels you along and gives you this great insight into Paris his, Paris's history through these famous and I should also say many obscure, amazing, obscure historical personages who Rob has kind of resuscitated. So Parisians and Adventure History of Paris. I'm also going to very briefly recommend something on Slate. Slate has a new pop-up soccer blog devoted to the World Cup called The Spot. Mike, you're our sports expert. Why is it called The Spot? It's the spot you put the ball on for a penalty kick or a free kick. The spot can change. Already the name of the blog is like so far inside soccer. I don't even understand it. However, (laughs) the octagon pattern, the name of that blog is offsides. I don't even know what that joke means. Anyway, um, there was a great post on the blog. There are many great posts on the blog, but the post that I most enjoyed this week was one about the Simpsons classic episode mocking soccer mocking slash playing homage slash yeah. uh, uh, and has Aga, Bariaga, Bariaga too. Those were the names exactly, um, and and has a very fun, smart, close reading of the episode and interviews with some of the people who put it together. So even if you do not know what the spot is. You should check out that post and fondly recall that episode and perhaps even go back and watch that episode in preparation for the coming World Cup mania. All right, Jody, thanks for coming on the show. Thank you. Pasca, thanks for sitting in today for Steve. You're welcome. Oh, wow. I mean, you guys complimented the gist, so I had to earn it. Listen to the gist. Listen to the gist. That's the lesson. All right. Now we can do our outro. Um, all right. Oh, wait, didn't, you didn't say goodbye to me. Dana, I just take you for granted because you've been around every week. All right. <laughs> Dana, as always, thank you very much. Thank you, Julia. Steadfast and stalwart. You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today at our show page, slate.com slash culturefest. And you can email us at culturefest at slate.com or drop us a note at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash culturefest. Our producer is Anne Hepperman. Our intern is Anna Schechtman. The executive producer of Slate Podcasts is Andy Bowers. Our Twitter feed is at slatecultfest. 
For Dana Stevens and Mike Pesca, I'm Julia Turner. We'll see you next week. When summer comes, we go away to mountains or seashore. I can't take hubby with me, poor boy. He must stay home. My and the store. You bet he's having one great time, although he writes to me, I'm feeling blue. But he hasn't got a single me array. I have a good time, too. He thinks, for him I am tiny and fading away. So he comes out every Friday for what I do not know. (laughs) And he only stays till Sunday. Hooray, hooray, hooray. Nothing like that in my family.